from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, during former President Barack Obama's remarks Wednesday about the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, he noted the diversity of protesters, saying the representative cross-section of America on the streets didn't exist in the 60s. Still, Latino, Asian American, Arab American, and other leaders of color are saying it's time to go further and address anti-black racism within their communities to dismantle racism. Cross-racial solidarity and what's required to achieve it, next on Forum. Join us. You're listening to Forum from KQED. I'm Mina Kim. Leaders of color are calling on their communities to be better allies amid protests demanding justice for George Floyd, for Black Lives to Matter, and for the tearing down of structures of institutional racism. Activist and author Jose Antonio Vargas tweeted, We must fight pervasive and insidious anti-Blackness in Latinx, Middle Eastern, and Asian and Pacific Islander communities. In this hour, we talk about how to stop reinforcing a system that hurts us all. We're joined by Julio Ricardo Varela. He's co-host of Futuro Media's In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome to Forum, Julio Ricardo Varela. I'm glad to be back. And also with us is Jose Antonio Vargas, journalist, activist, and author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Thanks for joining us, Jose Antonio Vargas. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Zahra Bilou. She's executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, Zahra. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Eric Ward is also with us, Executive Director of Western State Center, an advocacy organization focused on strengthening an inclusive democracy. Welcome to Forum, Eric Ward. Thank you so much for having me. And Eric Ward, I'm going to start with you. I mean, given your experience um, and work in inclusive movement building, I do want to get a sense of whether you think that more non-Black people of color truly are showing up in this moment, that something does feel different from, say, the 60s, as Obama referenced, or even 92 in L.A. So I I think we want to first say uh, that things indeed have have changed, Um, uh, but they, but the reasons behind it are are a little bit more complicated, and I think it's important to to nuance. Uh, The 1960s brought about the civil rights movement that overturned white supremacy uh, as the rule of law. Uh, Demographics in the United States previous to, to 1965 were a majoritarian white society, uh, and the rules of law were shaped around that. One of the victories of the civil rights uh, movement was the 1965 Immigration uh, and, and Nationality Act, which removed white supremacist barriers uh, to immigration and, and refugee status, thus making the United States a much more rich and diverse society. Uh, that was a victory led by Black America. And so, of course, yes, today, uh, America is more diverse. Uh, that means Black allies are, are, are more diverse. And we certainly are seeing that on the streets. Secondly, I would just say really quickly that over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, many immigrant 
refugee organizations, American Muslim organizations, uh, and others have done the really hard work of trying to understand structural racism in America and what it means to align around Black America. Still, we have a long way to go, and I, th I think we need to, to admit this, not only with other communities of color, but also white America, that what we are seeing right now is a public referendum on racism in America, and we need more people to join Black and Indigenous leaders as they struggle to take us all to a better place. And that's part of the reason that we wanted to have this conversation was it did feel like in some ways this was being framed so much as a black-white issue. And what uh, Jose Antonio Vargas, for example, you made clear in your tweet is that this is an everybody issue and that still much more work needs to be done, especially in communities of color for, for more authentic and effective allyship. I mean, what do you see? What what prompted that uh, that tweet that I that I read in that intro? <laughs> well, I have to say, what prompted is this. You know, I live in the Bay Area and I grew up in the Bay Area, right? So I, I immigrated here from the Philippines in like 1993, and I remember just <laughs> one of my first biggest memory was was trying to understand that Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston were black because growing up in the Philippines, I just thought of them as Americans. It wasn't until mm. I got here that I was like, oh. There's the black thing, there's the white thing. Well, as someone who's Filipino, who looks Asian, but has a Latino name, like where do I fit in in this conversation? So just kind of watching everything that's happening that feels truly historic what's happening. And you know, as, as Eric said, it is definitely this public reckoning. And so as, as I saw it kind of unfold, I just started asking myself, wait a second, I live in California where the majority of people, if you put the Latinx and the Asian Pacific Islander community together, we're actually the majority of the state. Um, Define American, this organization that I founded, we hosted mm -hmm. this forum a few weeks ago called the Black and Gold Forum um, that had like two Asian American people and two Black Americans. And one of the panelists was Nicole Hannah-Jones, who had just won the Pulitzer for the 1619 Project right. in the New York Times just an incredible project. And in the forum, she said something that was fascinating and I think important. She said that anti-Blackness is part of the Americanization process. And if you want to succeed in this country, you certainly are not going to align yourself to those that are at the bottom. You're going to align yourself with those at the top. So she spoke to this idea and at Define American, this is something that we're grappling with now. How do we talk to non-Black immigrant communities about what that means that in part of our process in this country, you know, it, it is okay, it is encouraged to love Black culture, which is, which is ubiquitous, but not necessarily to love Black people, right? That though we love Black people, there's that quote, for their rhythm, but not necessarily for their blues, right? Mm. So I think grappling with that is something that we're dealing with. Not to mention, of course, you know, I mean, the Black immigrant population in this country has increased fivefold since 1980. Right. So even that conversation is really, really important to, to make sure that we're including black immigrants, documented and undocumented. I'm so struck by what you're saying, because, I mean, basically, you were taught when you came here that America, American meant only really one thing and that that America was stratified by by race and then also that it became very clear to you that if you wanted to have power and influence that you needed to move toward whiteness to some extent. I mean, 
Uh, Julio Ricardo Varela, is this something that you see playing out in uh, in the Latino community as well? And I ask this because you also tweeted a pretty, um, I don't want to say incendiary, but it was like a straight up tweet, right? Like, was, uh, you know, <laughs> the word incendiary is, is not allowed for journalists of color. I'm just passionate about it. Right. So, so uh, when you said just stop, white supremacy is also a thing in Latin America. Absolutely. With, with a couple of expletives thrown in there. No, I'm just kidding. But no, yeah, no, what, what were kidding. you referring to? Uh, it's this notion of um, how whiteness is celebrated in Latin America. And it's kind of what um, what I said. And we, I was just quoted at NBC News. There was a great piece in NBC News by Nicole um, Acevedo, who, who talked about the anti-blackness in Latino communities and how they're dealing with this, George, with, with what's happened in the last couple of weeks. And we literally bring our baggage, our racist baggage from Latin America and the Caribbean to the United States. And when you look at 600 years, I've lost count of colonialism and imperialism and colorism. And the fact that the Spanish system literally was based on race. So the whiter you were, the more successful you were. Because that was, you know, there, it was literally a European white supremacist notion. And we need to remember that with when when enslaved people were were ripped away from Africa and brought, you know, and, and taken to like places in the United States, Latin America has a much larger black population by far than the United States. And so this notion of, you know, when, when Latin Americans talk about, well, we're of all races, it's not necessarily true because, and it's not, not necessarily true. It's not true. And, you know, the fact that we're like, well, we're multiracial because we have Spanish blood and, you know, indigenous blood and African blood. No, if you look at the history of Latin America, if you look at culture in Latin America, if you look at positions of power in Latin America, it's all white. I mean, all you have to do is turn on Mexican telenovelas and you can see it immediately in just how black people are portrayed or indigenous people are portrayed as seeing as servile and docile. And anyone who is white is celebrated. So what I say about this is that we have now brought that sensibility into the United States as US Latinos. And there's a very interesting dynamic that's quite uncomfortable. And I've been, I've been living this for 15 years and writing about it and getting in trouble. So I'm all good. <laughs> this notion of, well, you know, I, I, you know, what about us? You know, I don't see a connection between black lives or immigrants detained in, in jails. I'm not saying that we, uh, you know, anti-Mexican, being anti-Mexican in this country has a very, very deep history of racial violence and discrimination. And then you look at Central Americans, you look at Puerto Ricans, um, they're all there. But what we're trying to say is that by amplifying, by amplifying black lives, by putting black lives in front and giving black voices the opportunity to lead right now, in essence, we as a community, we as Latinos are going to become part of whatever this, you know, world will become of equality. So if you want to be on the side of equality, Black Lives Matter. And if you don't, then 
you're just chasing white supremacy here. You think that you, you as a Latin American and a lot of white passing Latinos, um, and I'm calling out my peeps here, um, are also portraying in white supremacy, but that is ingrained in us as Latin Americans is what I'm saying. It's interesting, you know, Eric Ward, there's so much in what Julio is saying right now, but but one of the things that I, I want to highlight for a moment is just the fact that while there are different communities of color and while their experiences are not exactly the same as black people, they have struggled with similar issues of marginalization and racism and discrimination as well. What do you think holds groups back from engaging in solidarity or seeing their experience or seeing those similarities with the black experience? It's, it's blackness. It is that uh, we live in a society uh, and a hemisphere that has been socialized um, uh, to reject blackness, uh, to see blackness as uh, inferior. Uh, we, we live in a society that was grounded in white superiority and the binary uh, is, is, is white and, and black. It is not the fault of individuals in other communities of color. It is merely a, pr a process of socialization uh, that has happened across uh, generations. Uh, it's not surprising. I think what is more inspiring is a growing number of individuals in those communities who have rejected uh, that socialization in, in, in very powerful ways. Um, you know, as we watch the American Muslim community that uh, who uh, has faced a bigotry that has become racialized, right? Islamophobia mm -hmm. is not just a religious form of bigotry, but a racialized form of bigotry. When we see anti-Semitism, which is not a religious form of bigotry in this country, but a racialized form of bigotry. When we look at the number of immigrant children who are still in detention years later, um, we, we understand that we are in a united moment. But what will kill this coalition uh, is any semblance uh, to the beliefs of white superiority. Uh, we have to understand that it is not just black people who suffer in this society, uh, but it is black and, and indigenous people who are the faces at the bottom of the well of race and race in America. Uh, race is complicated, but, but we can't forget who are the most vulnerable even has our own unique community struggle in this moment. So yes. it's, it's, it's critical at this point, right? It, that we align ourselves as much as possible in support of black leadership at the community level, uh, organizations like the Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matters, Color of Change, and, and many of others. Uh, we need to take their leadership, whether we are uh, black leaders like me who work in multiracial organizations or whether you are leaders of color. Um, it is it's critical in this moment. Democracy is on the precipice. Well, Eric, what I hear you laying out is not just why it's critical uh, to align with uh, Black Lives Matter and Black organizations that are trying to break down this system. But also you are nodding to to the trauma of of being a person of color. And, and you mentioned American Muslims, and I want to turn to Zahra Bellou because I feel like what complicates things is that, you know, well, first, I feel like the Muslim community has been so targeted recently as well. And there's this trauma that also needs to be confronted that people need to push through uh, to then be able to align with others. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's what plays out in the Muslim community. Do you have thoughts? 
I mean, no, we've been, I mean, one, thank you to everyone. I, I appreciate being in these spaces because I'm also continuing to learn as, as a non-Black person of color, as a second generation immigrant. I don't think it's complicated at all. I, I agree that people position it as complicated, that it lands as complicated, but the experience, particularly of immigrant Muslims, is one that pales in, in comparison to what the Black community has historically experienced in the United States. I, as, as someone whose parents immigrated here after the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which is a direct outcome of the civil rights movement, I am a beneficiary of the Black liberation struggle. And at the same time, I'm a beneficiary of white supremacy. I grew up in a home where as much as, as sincere as we were in our religious practice, as committed as we were to social justice, like we didn't understand that you don't call 911, that like the consequences of doing that are problematic or that our schools are funded a certain way for a certain reason or that the people that go to Congress don't simply represent us, but that we have to hold them accountable and that many of them get it wrong when they are passing laws to protect us. And so it lands as complicated for a lot of people, but I know that you know, in the Arab and Muslim community, in the South Asian community, we've been thinking about the, the tactics that are sometimes used, um, even rhetorically, to, to oppress us. And so some examples that have come up just this week in conversations in the Muslim community are, wait a second, when people say that Israel and Palestine is complicated, we say, well, actually it's not, it's a simple human rights struggle, right? And so when Arabs and Muslims will say to me, well, it's complicated, well, like, actually no, like someone has guns and someone doesn't. Someone has jails and someone doesn't. It's really simple in that way. The other rhetorical um, perspective that comes up for us is the both sides perspective, right? So again, using Israel and Palestine, using the US invasion in Iraq, all of these war efforts that we have fought back against uh, in the immigrant Muslim community for so long in partnership with others. When people say to us both sides, we say, no, no, someone has rocks and sticks and someone has tanks and helicopters. And so that same thing here is that when people have said to us both sides, we've said, no, no, like one side is the oppressor. One side is structurally more powerful, right? Because what is racism? Prejudice plus power. And so that's what we're looking at here. Now, as to the trauma, the, the challenge, and I think that this happens a lot where we're talking about targeted communities, is how do I find time and energy when I am constantly fighting fires? I am constantly struggling. I too look over my shoulder. So how do I, how do I work past that selfishness to work with other communities, to stand with and work with and advocate for black communities? And that, that's where the deep learning has to happen is to say, wait a second, like we are all part of this. Some of us are complicit in it um, and we need to unlearn white supremacy and then think about how we mitigate the damage of our complicity over time, recognizing that none of us are free, right? Like if we, we can't end Islamophobia without ending anti-black racism. As, as Eric mentioned, Islamophobia is more than bias against the religion. It's a racialized bias. And so none of us get free until black folk are free. I, I get what you're saying about how, how the argument of that it's complicated can actually, can actually really not encapsulate the issue and, and even move people away from having to address it. And I hear what you're saying too about, about the energy that is required to be able to fight this fight. I wonder though, if also a precursor, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Jose Antonio Vargas, 
to being able to be a true ally really involves confronting your own participation or benefit, as Zara Ballou was pointing out, of, of how you have benefited from this system. And I feel like Asian Americans in particular yeah. uh, really yes. have to deal, have, have an issue dealing oh with God. this because Absolutely. of- Absolutely. <laughs> and well, I, look, I mean, I, I remember when I first took my grandmothers to Ellis Island, um, I ended up being having to be in New York for some event and I brought my, my grandmother and then my grandfather's sisters. Um, including the sister who's the person responsible for getting everybody here, right? So what Eric, I'm so glad that Eric laid that out. Like a lot of immigrants are here because of what happened during the civil rights movement on the back mm -hmm. of what black people fought for, right? So we got here because she was able to marry a U.S. citizen and then she petitioned her brother, my grandfather, and that's how I got here. Even though everybody in the family got here legally, I got here illegally, but we're all here, right? And I took them to Ellis Island and it was really interesting um, because I took like 470 something Filipinas, right? And one of the comments I remembered was when one, was one of the grandmothers said to me, Uy, ang mga puti pala immigrants. Because my, one of my, my grandmothers didn't realize that people who are white are immigrants. So, you know, all around Ellis Island in the museum, you see pictures of Russians, um, Irish, Italian people. She did not realize because we have been so conditioned in this country to think immigrants, we, people think immigrants, people think Latin people, Latinx people, people think Asian people, right? And then one of my grandmothers who's very racist, she was, a, she was the one when I was a kid that had to understand why she talked about black people like always in like a whisper. When she would bring up black people, it was always like, oh, you know, the people over there don't go to Oakland. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Mountain View, it was already kind of cemented in my head that Oakland was this bad place to go. So I took her in front of this point in the Ellis Island um, Museum where there was an entire exhibit around slavery and around what happened with black people right, with people who were kidnapped from their tribes and then put in ships. I explained all of this to her, the fact that they had to, they had to basically be on the ship together and the excrement and all, the, all that. She started crying. And then I started realizing nobody had ever told her this. Immigrants who come to this country who take the citizenship test. I was just reviewing in the past couple of weeks the citizenship test that immigrants take to be a naturalized citizen of this country. There's nothing in the citizenship test about the experience of Black people in this country. In this country. Even the question about the Civil War is like one of the, one of the acceptable answers for how the Civil War happened is quote-unquote economic reasons. That's an acceptable answer in the citizenship test in this government. So what do we teach immigrants about the history of this country, how this country was built? To me, those are the kind of conversations that I can't wait for Fox News for that, right? Or CNN for that. I gotta go talk to my grandmas about that, to my aunts and my uncles and my cousins. And therein, uh, I hear some potential solutions, which I'd love to get into after the break. We're talking with Jose Antonio Vargas, Sara Bellu, Eric Ward, and Julio Ricardo Barella. More with them and with you after the break. I'm Mina Kim, this is Forum.
This is Farah Maimina Kim. During this time, many people are calling for dismantling racism, and much of the conversation frames the conflict as between a black minority and a white majority. And while the current uprising is sparking conversations, it's sparking conversations about how other groups of color can show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And with this time with protesters, part of that work involves confronting division and anti-blackness within these communities, according to our guests. And they are Eric Ward, Executive Director of Western State Center and Advocate organization focused on strengthening an inclusive democracy. Zahra Bilou, Executive Director of the Council on American Islamic Relations in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jose Antonio Vargas, journalist, activist, and author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. And Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of Futuro Media's In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. And you, our listeners, are with us. And what kind of racial solidarity have you seen in the wake of George Floyd's death? Do you agree with what our guests are calling for in terms of that soul searching within communities of color? If you're a person of color, what does cross racial solidarity or allyship mean to you? What do you think it will require of us? Give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Jeffrey tweets, let's remember that the success of whiteness of the 15th and 16th centuries was supported by Christian doctrine. Christianity has a lot to atone for, and I say this as a Christian pastor. Lawanda writes, I always say that some immigrants are more racist than white people, believe me, especially in the Bay Area. And Scott writes, language matters. The language of Black Lives Matter means only that Black lives matter to the exclusion of all others. This is by definition and structure of the English language. Such language is alienating to all other races and more inclusive language should be found. The Black Lives Matter movement does not like the term all lives matter. How about Black Lives Matter too? Eric Ward, curious to get your response to Scott. <laughs> You know, certainly, and I, and I want to be kind here. Um, you know, for uh, 500 years, uh, Black America has attempted in every way uh, to become fully recognized human beings in the United States of America. And, and the idea that Black Lives Matters is even a controversial thought right? The, the idea that Black Lives Matters is somehow a political thought uh, just tells us how far we have come, how lost we are right now uh, in this society. Black Lives Matters is not a controversial thought. What is a controversial thought is that for 500 years, Black people have only been treated in ways that brutalize them. Let's think about this for a second. I challenge anyone to try to sit still for eight minutes and 46 seconds to think about how much concentration and effort it takes to simply sit still for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And then think about how much effort a law enforcement officer had to put in to put his knee on the neck of an individual who was telling him he could not breathe for eight minutes and 46 seconds. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, people walked by and did nothing. And you want to tell me that all lives matter in America? What history, what reality do you live in? Black lives don't matter here. 
And Black Lives Matters is a controversial statement only because folks know it is true that Black lives don't matter. It is a false statement. The truth is this, that we have to decide whether all people have the right to live, love, and work free from fear and bigotry. Whether we say Black Lives Matters, whether we say not one more, whether it is a million rising, what we are saying is room to breathe. And it is time for America to step up and be the country it aspires to be. It is a better nation than this, and it is time to prove it. Uh, Julio Varela, Ricardo Varela, I, I'm curious mm. what role yeah. you feel like not being seen as American contributes to this participation of reaffirming white supremacy that creates sort of, you know, just those terrible consequences that Eric Ward is pointing out, right? Yeah, I mean, I am originally from Puerto Rico, uh, which is another stain, was born and raised. It's an American colony. I've always felt like a second class citizen in my own country because I'm a colonial subject. So, you know, using words like colonialism in 2020 might feel a little bit like, oh, you're being ridiculous, Julio. There's no colonialism in the United States. Um, just look at the United States Supreme Court. Puerto Rico is not um, Puerto Rico is not part of the United States. It belongs to the United States. And I have a fellow former colonialist in Jose Antonio from the Philippines because we are, you know, descendants of a U.S. war of 1898. So I think people need to be really careful in understanding, you know, what it is, you know, what American really means, because I feel like this country, and, and I agree with uh, what Eric said so eloquently, and I apologize if I snickered, because I'm kind of tired of this whole two sides thing. It's like what Zara said. We, we instantly, as people think there's two sides to everything, mm. and I'm kind of done with it because, you know, if there's two sides to colonialism, then there's freedom. So why can't we turn it around? If there's two sides to racism, then there's anti-racism. Why are we not two-siding that? And it's supposed to totally conflating this, well, everything matters. You know, it, it, it's like the argument of, you know, affirmative action. Well, where's affirmative action for white people? It's called white supremacy. You know, I've lived in white spaces. You know, I've, I've succeeded in white spaces. Um, my privilege as, you know, like I said, a white passing Puerto Rican man has put me in white spaces and I still don't feel like part of those spaces because I see it. Like, I, it's like you're almost like infiltrating white supremacy and kind of reporting back and say, yeah, it's really messed up. And that's the part where I'm kind of, you know, it kind of defines me. So I just think that people really have to start listening. I really think I agree with Eric in the fact that a big portion of how this country was formed was formed and was established literally on the back on the on the backs of enslaved peoples on indigenous peoples and let's be real about how this country was built on violence and that violence has been institutionalized 
And that's where I think that's where the conversation needs to go. And I, and if we begin to look at this across ethnic and racial groups, there is a lot of commonality, but I still will stand by this statement is that black lives need to be amplified. We need to lead with black, black voices. So then Zara Belu, what would you say, you know, allyship really looks like what solidarity really needs to look like, especially from communities of color? I'm that are I'm still sitting. Yeah, I'm I'm still sitting with with Eric's call to us to imagine what it would take to kill someone in mm. the way that um, these police officers are killing people and to hold someone down for eight minutes. And so I think that the what allyship looks like to me and the way that I hope to practice it and be an ally is first and foremost to listen to black leaders who despite their pain and trauma continue to call us in and say, this is what we're experiencing. This is what we need from you. So that's the first step is listen to black leaders, to black individuals, black families who have been in this fight so much longer than, than most of us, um, actually than, than all of us. Um, that's the first piece. The second piece is the work that has to be done inside our communities to combat colorism, to combat complicity and white supremacy, to challenge the narratives that sometimes do the both sides and that it's complicated and why did that happen? Or we should protest peacefully. No, like we, we need to create space for righteous rage and rebellion. And then the third piece around allyship for me that I continue to push myself on as someone who is privileged is what I'm, like my privilege is not a reflection of anything good that I did. It is a reflection of where I was born, what my skin color is, what papers I have. And so what am I doing with that privilege, which as a person of faith, I sincerely believe is a trust from God that I will be held to account for what I did with what I was given. And so that means that people of non-Black people of color need to be willing to donate more, to protest more, to speak out more, and to risk more. Courage is never comfortable. And so if our allyship or our self-proclaimed allyship is comfortable and easy, that to me is the first sign that we're not doing enough. Hmm. Well, Bet writes, I totally agree with Eric and not with the person who emailed suggesting Black Lives Matter too. As a white woman, it seems very clear to me that of course that's implicit. White lives have always mattered in the US. Now it's time to recognize non-white lives. This is not a two-sided question. Let me go to Brian in Windsor. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you doing? Well. Good. Um, I think that the thing that everybody's really overlooking is that this is much deeper than just a country problem, and it's much deeper than even a color of skin problem. It's a lack of education and understanding problem, and it exists in humans all over the planet. I mean, racism is endemic everywhere, and what is it? It's based on fear and lack of knowledge and lack of knowing. I've been fortunate. I grew up all over the world, and so I've had the opportunity to live with people of all different cultures. And it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a white-centered culture, a black-centered culture. It's the fear of the unknown and the lack of education that really is at the root of all this. Well, Brian... Deepak is echoing some of your statements about how it's worldwide. Deepak writes, the phenomenon of devaluing dark skin seems to be worldwide in India, the Indian diaspora, where many people are as dark skinned as people of African descent. The darker you are, the less attractive you are, the less value you are. 
Jose Antonio Vargas, Brian's also reminded me of a tweet of yours where you where you say, dear U.S. history professors, I, I say mm. this with love because I love teachers. Now is the time to reassess how you teach American history, whose stories you center and the narratives you tell. As, as we get to moving the conversation towards what what does solidarity look like? What does changing the system look like and will require? Is that something that you feel like is a critical piece? Absolutely critical. And I agree with what the caller just said about this all in many ways, the core of this is how we educate ourselves and the systems of education in this country. You know, I was lucky because I, I went to a middle school where my English teacher assigned the bluest eye to read in eighth grade. I mean, that was an earthquake. Like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye to me was in many ways the beginning of having to create my own map, my own kind of moral map to understand this country and how to question it. Um, and of course, Toni Morrison led, led to James Baldwin and led to Langston Hughes and led to a lot of, you know, African-American writers who from the very beginning have, have made it, um, have made it central, the, the very idea of asking this country to make sure it actually lives up to what it says it is, right? And, you know, Eric, um, I'm, I'm also sitting with Eric's question. Because when, 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 when George Floyd was, was um, for eight minutes and 46 seconds, one of the cops was this Asian man, Tu Tao, who's, who's Hmong, who you know, came to this country from a family of refugees. And for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you know, his, his knee wasn't on George Floyd's uh, neck, but he stood there. He was complicit. You know, and, and as I saw it happening, you know, I, I had to stop myself from keeping to watch the video, but I just kept remembering all those moments that I was in school and um, in my middle school, high school and college and how many times Asian people, as Asian people, we witness something and we don't say something about it. I remember when I was in high school, you know, Asian parents, Asian American parents would complain that why are there too many black kids and Latinx kids? in AP courses, in honors courses, because they're, they're actually um, lowering the standards in those classes. I remember thinking, wait, what are they talking about? So, you know, as someone who's Filipino, as someone who's, who's Asian American in this country, this idea of complicity and how it, it spans from education to housing, to work, right? To, to call, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm thinking right now about all the whitening creams that I see in the households that I grew up in. You know, white, whitening creams, as Julio said, you know, mm -hmm. were part of Spanish colonialism. And a lot of that is making sure that our skin is as white as possible. So like just last year, I was talking to my aunt, like, why does she have that whitening cream? And why is she using that, you know, on my cousin's skin? This is deep. And it requires the kind of comprehensive, holistic thinking about race and about white supremacy that I don't think as a country we've ever really had. And now is the time more than ever to be having these conversations. Well, Zara Balu, one of the one of the comments you made to our producer, Blanca Torres, was that, you know, when we do the everybody is racist piece, it puts up walls immediately. How do you think we need to approach these kinds of conversations when we hear these kinds of things from from community members, family members even? So one is, is having the conversations and every every audience is different, every every person is different. 
I want to be clear that it is the responsibility of non-Black people of color to talk to other non-Black people of color in the same way that we ask white people to talk to white people, that the work that has to be done now is not the responsibility of, of Black people, that we as allies, as individuals striving to be allies need to have these conversations. And some of it really is about like what works with grandma versus what works with uncle versus what works with cousin. I do find that when we are talking to people who are newer to the conversations, right? Who are maybe just coming to terms with the reality that black people have lived in for hundreds of years and connecting the dots that the first thing, when we start with, well, everybody's a little bit racist, that it puts up some walls. And so what I find works in the conversations that I've had an opportunity to participate in is to talk about the history of policing, the history of white supremacy, the history of anti-black violence, and then to talk about how we are beneficiaries, both of the black liberation struggle as immigrants here, uh, in, in the case of my family and community, as well as what is our complicity, right? Like how are we, how are we participating in, in this process? And so the example I raised earlier that I'll, I'll use again is for Arab and South Asian immigrants, the comfort with calling the police is something that we default to. And by the way, something that we have leaned on for comfort in the context of the last 20 years of hate crimes and hate incidents post 9-11. And so rather than approaching someone who hasn't had this conversation before and saying, well, everybody's a little bit racist, which I find in my experience, will sometimes cause them to shut down. I start with, this is what's happening. Like, what do you think about it? Here's the history. Here's why I'm coming to this conclusion. Here's what we're hearing. And by the way, here's what we can do. And so the other thing moving from just like, hey, like here's, here's how we are part of the problem or how we can be part of the problem. It's giving people something to do because we, we find that people, when they hear, when they hear about what's happening, when they see what's happening, when they watch the videos, they want to help. Um, and so there's an openness right now. And so people who are tuning in and who, who haven't had the conversations with family and friends yet, I really think this is the time. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't know um, if Julio um, or Jose or Eric, you want to speak to this at all, but that, you know, when you're already marginalized, this fear of calling out your own, criticizing your own, airing your community's sort of dirty laundry, so to speak, there's this fear that it can be used against you um, because you are already yourself a community that that struggles for power and have, have experienced um, discrimination as, as, in, as part of this system. I've, I've crossed that bridge uh many years ago and I've come to terms with it. I understand what the point is, but at the same time, I see this as a two front effort. I think we need, we need as a Latino community that is, you know, the largest ethnic racial group, however you want to frame. It. And I, I kind of tend to say it's ethnic and not necessarily racial, but we have to figure it out ourselves sometimes because for every person that is out there with a, you know, Latinos for Black Lives Matter sign, and there are plenty of them, Mexican flags waving, Puerto, you know, in the West Coast, Puerto Rican flags waving in Miami during these protests, you see that connection. But for every one of those, there's still plenty of people of our community who are, who are living in white supremacy, who think they are better than others. You know, it, it comes in the conversation of like, well, my family came here, you know, legally. And so we're still having those battles. So I tend to just resist the, well, you know, don't rock the boat. I, 
that boat's been rocked. It's, you know, I've <laughs> people that know me, that boat's been rocking for a while. And I do think to me, it's a two way effort. You have to continue to discuss and expose the racism that is in our community. And you have to look at this in the context of an America that is changing. And there is a massive uprising movement that is led by black lives and black voices. So I have no problem with it. Well, Namiko writes, as a lighter skinned Latina and immigrant, I've been struggling to define my role and ways to be a supportive non-black person of color, while at the same time confronting my own privilege and the stratification of race, gender, and ethnicity in America. Let me go to Lauren in San Francisco. Hi, Lauren. Hello. I just want to uh, say that I really love this show, and I agree with all of your commentators. I'm a second-generation native San Franciscan and a fourth-generation American of Chinese descent, married to an African-American man, and we have a son. And I just wanted to say that I, I agree that education is one of the most important ways to combat um, racism and anti-blackness. And I would just suggest that uh, the 1619 Project be a mandatory part of curriculum at every level of American education. And I'll... Thank you. Lauren, thank you. And and resources. I mean, Define American has a lot of resources, right? Yes, uh, Jose, in terms we, of how yes, to have these conversations. We yeah. um, we're actually now in the process because of everything that's happening of updating. So if you go to our website, we actually have a resource for having conversations specifically like this. And we are updating it right now to be able to address specifically immigrant families and intergenerational immigrant families, non-Black immigrant families. It's called the Guide to Difficult Conversations. So please go to defineamerican.com slash conversation. Um, and I totally agree with the listener about Nicole Hannah-Jones. And you know what made me think about it? I remember talking to Nicole about it is, you know, I grew up in newsrooms in this country. I grew up, I worked at the Chronicle, I worked at the Washington Post. And I have to tell you, like every news organization right now must do some real soul searching about the editors and the journalists in their organizations mm -hmm. and how they're covering the story. Yep. Like that to me, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sad to report this. I actually think there are now less people of color in newsrooms than there were when I was getting started in journalism in the, the late 1990s, you know, and, and you see that in the coverage, you see that with how, um, how in many ways white privilege always rears its head when it comes to looking at the white perspective as the default, as the center. You know, I, I'm, I'm reminded, you know, again, by some of the work that needs to happen within newsrooms to make sure that, 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 that we are covering this with as much historical context as possible. Mm -hmm. I was rewatching one of my favorite videos of Toni Morrison on PBS. And, you know, she was commenting on what happened with the Rodney King riots in 1992. And she said, let me quote this. What struck me most about those who rioted was how long they waited. The restraint they showed, not the spontaneity, the restraint. They waited and waited for justice and it didn't come. Mm -hmm. So even having that as a perspective, right? Thinking that, oh my God, these rioters, these looters. No, 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 wait a second. They waited. They wanted justice, but we still have not gotten it. So are we surprised, right, that people are rioting and protesting? Well, Riley writes, and I want to get 
Eric Ward, your reaction to this. Riley writes, a recurring problem I've observed in the overall minority equality movement is the shunning of allies from different minority groups. I'm Asian American and I've been dismissed and told multiple times that I'm not a real minority. Minorities experience discrimination in different magnitudes and flavors, but to dismiss any group's experience is hypocrisy that is antithetical to any equality movement, isn't it? You know, Eric Ward, I know that you've tried to create inclusive movements. I mean, do you think this, this happens? It, it certainly it certainly does it does happen and and uh, I don't agree um, uh, when it happens but but I think we have to to also understand what is underlying that uh, there is a tendency in America not only in white America but in communities of color to to flatten uh, the experience of of race in America and um, it is that flattening that I think stings for indigenous communities and, and um, uh, African-American communities. Um, like, let us be clear that those who descended from slavery uh, spent over 500 years, right, uh, living uh, in a system of brutal chattel slavery. This was not the slavery that we hear about today or, or see about, this was a system of chattel slavery that stripped people of their languages, of their relationships. It turned them from human beings into nothing more than property. Uh, and it was not over five centuries. This was over, I'm sorry, over or five decades. This was hundreds of years. And, and so we have to imagine that it is very bitter uh, it stings deeply when folks try to flatten the experience. Most people have no idea what it means to walk in black skin uh, in the United States. There is a, an old book that I encourage folks to, uh, to read called Black Like Me. And it was written in the 50s and 60s. It is a white journalist who put himself basically in, in black skin and put himself in the South and wrote a diary of his experiences. And we should all hold that at the end of the book, he stopped doing it because he could not take it anymore. And one of the things he writes is, I don't understand why, ev why every black person is not burning down this country. He was in such rage after less than a year. Imagine every day being brutalized while trying to simply survive like every other American tries to do uh, in the society. So it does sting, I, I get it. This is all of our home. We all want a better world. This is not left or right. This is not Republican, Democrat. This is not conservative or liberal. It is those of us who believe in an inclusive democracy where everyone has opportunity, where everyone is treated uh, with their humanity, and those who want to continue to brutalize us or turn a blind eye why we become brutalized. So yes, we hear things that are unfair that are said to other yes. communities of color. Too often, far too many of us in the black community play down Islamophobia, play down xenophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, and, and other forms of bigotry. But we have to understand that Black and Indigenous communities 
have been terrorized for centuries in this country. And Eric Ward will have to leave it there. Eric Ward, Zahra Belu, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Julio Ricardo Varela, thanks all of you for sharing your insights, your honesty, and thanks to our listeners for the same. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.